DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's program, Prigozhin gone, but where does that leave Belarus? Cruel coincidence. Ukrainian Independence Day falls on the 18-month anniversary of Russia's invasion. There were 62 kilometers of Russian tanks around Kyiv, approaching Kyiv. This capacity to stand strong and to be strong at the moment when you risk everything, I think this is the image which is important today and which will be important after our victory. And Slovak security, dramatic arrests in the run-up to elections. Those stories and a whole lot more coming up on the programme. On Wednesday evening, Russia's aviation authority announced that Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the notorious mercenary group Wagner, was believed to have been on board a private jet which crashed en route from Moscow to St. Petersburg, killing all 10 occupants. Speculation is rife that the jet was downed on the orders of Vladimir Putin as an act of delayed revenge for the June mutiny, which saw Wagner troops take the city of Rostov-on-Don, with Prigozhin threatening to march on Moscow. A resolution to that dangerous stalemate was provided by the Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko, who brokered a Wagner withdrawal and offered Belarus as a new base for Prigozhin and his operations. So, given all that, where does Prigozhin's apparent death leave Lukashenko and Belarus now? To find out, I spoke to Belarusian journalist Hanna Lubakova. We all probably remember how two months ago Alexander Lukashenko extended, gave security guarantees to Evgeny Prigozhin uh, to stop the mutiny, to stop his march on Moscow. Lukashenko promised that if uh, Prigozhin does that, uh, then he will be safe and he can establish uh, his uh, private military company in Belarus and everything will be good. So two months later, we have observed the plane crash in which Prigozhin died. It basically means that any agreements uh, where Lukashenko says he might ensure anything mean nothing because, well, as we have seen, right, Prigozhin died. This is first aspect of it. The second aspect is that uh, Lukashenko really boasted his role as this mediator, as this negotiator, someone who is able to broker a deal between Putin and Prigozhin and generally Russian elites and conflicting parties in Russia. He wanted to show himself as someone who is really important, who can play a crucial role. But again, as we have seen, uh, Putin doesn't really care about that. I think uh, that's also a sign of disrespect from uh, Putin. Because for months, Lukashenko tried to show himself as this, you know, wise politician who is much wiser than Putin or anyone in Russia, because he apparently, um, as Lukashenko said, he called Prigozhin himself and asked him to stop this march. And I think the third aspect is uh, something, it's also a reminder for Lukashenko that Putin doesn't have any friends. Putin does have servants. And that's the role that uh, Lukashenko was assigned with. Putin treated Belarus as uh, a territory where Wagner mercenaries could be sent. And Lukashenko will be just used for that as, um, as a servant, as the secondary subordinate person. 
How do people in Belarus feel about the presence of Wagner troops in Belarus? When the news appeared, they would relocate to Belarus. Many people got really scared because uh, because of this reputation that Wagner mercenaries have. What's your understanding of how many Wagner troops are in Belarus at the moment? There is information from several sources, uh, including Ukrainian intelligence, Western intelligence, and our monitoring groups inside the country, that there should be around four, four and a half thousand Wagner mercenaries uh, in Belarus right now. The big question is what um, equipment they have. So apparently they don't have enough heavy military equipment, which means that they just are stationed there and perhaps serve as instructors or they just use Belarus as a territory where they can just have a legal base, like headquarters. And and from there, uh, they might be thinking about what uh, other operations they can do, whether it's going to be Africa or they might go back to Ukraine. So this is just a camp where they are stationed. It's an incredibly fast-moving situation, so it's very hard to make any predictions about what might happen in the future. But as someone with a particular eye on Belarus and how the fallout from this event might impact Belarus, are there any kind of scenarios that you could see developing later on the line that would make you sit up and think, oh yeah, this has got real significance? You know, the regime will kind of have a hard time justifying against the presence of Wagner mercenaries if they're going to stay to stay in Belarus. And I think for Russia, it doesn't also make any sense for them to stay, which might mean that they would leave. And Lukashenko will have a hard time again to explain to his own system why he was first so enthusiastic about their transfer, about their relocation, and second, why they would just leave the country. So this just shows that there is no logic uh, on Lukashenko's side. And I think even his system will see how dependent he is on Russia at the moment and how Russia decides here, not even him. I guess then the key question is sort of about the stability of the Lukashenko regime itself. I mean, how tight is his grip on power? I don't think that the regime is very monolithic. Uh, of course, he's able to keep power in, at the moment because he has loyalty of generals, he has loyalty of ministers, of uh, key people inside the system. There might be some movements or some developments inside the system when people would try to, the key people would try to establish separate independent relationship with Putin, with the Kremlin themselves, so they can grow in significance and power also. So there might be this, uh, you know, speculation because they will see weak Lukashenko. And generally for such a dictator, for someone who single-handedly rules the country, uh, losing face, losing, showing that he has less power is very dangerous because there might be different moods inside the system when they see that he's actually weaker than he tries to show. I was speaking to Belarusian journalist Hanna Lyubokova, currently a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council, an international affairs think tank which is headquartered in Washington. Now, news of the apparent death of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the man nicknamed Putin's butcher, broke on the eve of August 24th, the date on which Ukraine marks its Independence Day. This year, in a cruel twist of fate, the anniversary of Ukrainian independence from Soviet rule was also the 18-month anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion. 
Dear Ukrainian citizens, this morning President Putin announced a special military operation in Donbass. In many Ukrainian cities, explosions were heard. Today, calm is needed from each of you. I will talk to you soon. Don't panic. We are strong. We are ready for everything. We will win over anyone because we are Ukraine. Glory to Ukraine. 18 months of war in Ukraine. In order to get a sense of what Independence Day and this Independence Day in particular might mean to Ukrainians, I spoke to Tatyana Ogakova, Head of International Outreach at the Ukraine Crisis Media Centre. We are an independent country for more than 30 years now. But if in the beginning it was like a, just a day off, just a formal celebration of something which was given to us like a gift. Now we all understand the price of what is happening. And this day have a deep meaning for every Ukrainian. According to sociological data, uh, almost every Ukrainian, over 80% of Ukrainians, they already, unfortunately, they already have somebody who died or severely was severely wounded on the front line. And I mean a visual representation of that cost is uh, to be seen on the streets of Kiev at the moment because uh, all large-scale public celebrations have been cancelled because of security fears. But what there is to see are um, the mangled bodies of Russian tanks and other captured vehicles. I mean, it's a visually a, an incredibly powerful image. What do you sort of feel when, when you see those images coming out of Kiev? This is a symbol of uh, all this senseless aggression, of this will to, de- to destroy and uh, the landscape where you can see naturally all these Russian tanks. This is an apocalyptic landscape because what Russians do when they approach Ukrainian uh, cities and towns with their tanks and with their artillery. They try to demolish everything what they're able to see. I mean, not only people, civilians, but also houses, but also nature. This is the, a real disaster. Look at what they did in Bakhmut recently. In May 2023, they were able to capture finally Bakhmut, but there is no more city. In Mahmoud. So this is ruins, you know, what they did to Mariupol and what they did to many villages we were able to see with our own eyes. Like, for example, if you travel from Kharkiv to Slovyansk in Donetsk region, you were able to see a lot of villages like Kamyanka, like Dolina, and completely destroyed. And when we look at these tanks today on the main street of our capital, Kiev, on Khrushchev Street, this is a symbol of what we are fighting against. We are fighting against this willingness to kill everything which lives. I mean, just listening to you there, you know, on the, on the one hand, the scale is just almost incomprehensible. And yet the loss is felt personally by everybody. Everybody knows what they're fighting against. But what's your sense of what people are fighting for? Yes, indeed, this is a fundamental question, what we are fighting for, 
because the cost, as you said, is extremely high. And what we all want is a normal, free country where people can enjoy their rights and their freedoms. This is about life. This is about dignity. This is about values as well. This is against aggression. So to live in a normal, democratic, tolerant, open and free society. Freedom is our religion. What's the connection between that freedom and Europe and a Ukrainian sense of Europeanness? This is closely linked. Quite a few years ago, almost half of Ukrainians were skeptical about this idea, but today almost every Ukrainian, over 80% of Ukrainians, are deeply convinced that uh, European Union and European idea is the only way for our country. Europe means civilization. Europe means human rights. Europe means freedom of movement, freedom of choice, and many other values that most of Ukrainians share today. So these values are close to Ukrainian uh, people. And Europe also means support and help because uh, we are very thankful for all the help our country received from European countries, from European Union, but also from many European countries during this battle against uh, Russia, against Russia, Russian Federation. So this is also about solidarity. Finally, Tatiana, I'd love to end the interview looking forwards to a free Ukraine. I mean, you've already gestured towards it there, but I mean, there are so many images from the past 18 months that will be so hard to forget for all the worst reasons, but there will also be so many that I'm sure you and other Ukrainians will want to hold on to and to take with you into the future. If you could just pick, say, two images from the past 18 months that you would want to hold on to and take with you into the future, into a free Ukraine, what would they be? I would say I will never forget these first days of uh, Russian invasion. The Russian tanks were advancing towards Kiev, our capital, and the risk was very real that the capital would be captured. And this image of a Ukrainian territorial defense with Ukrainian flags and all these people united together, which were civilians just a day before that, and they were courageous enough to take arms, weapons, and to try their best to defend the country. Uh, checkpoints on every corner, on every street, and people trying to defend their land quite literally. I mean, it was not abstract, it was very complete, so it was about every single citizen being able to, to defend its land. And this image of Ukrainian flag somewhere on a street in Kiev, which was surrounded by this huge army and by these uh, tanks. There were 62 kilometers of Russian tanks around Kiev, approaching Kiev. And people which were not afraid, which didn't leave the city and which they were trying to defend it. So maybe this capacity to stand strong and to be strong at the moment when you risk everything, I think this is an image 
which is important today and which will be important after our victory. The words there of Tatyana Ogakova, literary scholar and head of international outreach at the Ukraine Crisis Media Centre. For the latest developments in Ukraine, you can download DW's Breaking News app or follow DW News on social media. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. With just six weeks to go before early elections, Slovakia's police and security services seem to be at war with each other. That is the headline, at least. The truth is perhaps rather less dramatic. But the sight of the current and former head of the country's counterintelligence service being led away in handcuffs has only added to the tensions ahead of what could be a decisive vote with major repercussions for Slovakia's immediate future. With more, here's Rob Cameron. There's one story and one story only dominating the headlines in Slovakia at the moment. The arrest of Michal Alac, head of the country's counterintelligence service, the SIS, plus his predecessor, several SIS officers and the head of Slovakia's National Security Authority. They're accused in a bewilderingly complex case revolving around allegations they'd obstructed a long-term criminal investigation into corruption within the SIS. They were arrested and their offices searched by members of Slovakia's elite organized crime unit NACA. Previously, SIS officers had been accused of making false statements and fabricating evidence to discredit the NACA investigation. Not for nothing has the media dubbed the affair a war between police and intelligence officers. The main opposition leader, the former Prime Minister, Robert Fico, says the dramatic arrests amounted to a coup d'etat by the Slovak police. That was immediately dismissed by Slovakia's president, Zuzana Čaputová. First of all, I want to say there is no police coup d'etat in Slovakia. There's an ongoing investigation into criminal offences, the scale of which has already been described by the media. Several of the suspects have already confessed their guilt in these offences. Others have been accused or indicted. Many of them have already been convicted. Ludovic Odor, the caretaker prime minister running the country until September's early elections, also sought to calm fears. I'm sure many of you are worried and irritated by the current situation and are faced with an unrelenting barrage of press conferences. And many of you are asking, what's happening? Who can I trust? Who can I not trust? So I'd like to reassure you right from the beginning that Slovakia is still a country governed by the rule of law. 
The independence of the police, prosecutors and the courts has not disappeared. But this does not, of course, mean that they're free to do whatever they want at will. And if someone tries to persuade you of the contrary, don't believe them. Those statements might have gone some way to reassure a troubled public. Grigory Mesezhnikov, a political analyst and the co-founder of the Slovak Institute for Public Affairs, admits the case is not a good look for a country already plagued by political instability. But he says the truth behind the case is more complex than war between police and spies, even if it's hard to explain, especially abroad. Look, it's a battle between those who are trying to reintroduce the norms of rule of law and those who are afraid that, uh, I mean, these steps would lead to their legitimate prosecution. Of course, I mean, I'm realist. I know that uh, it's not improving the image of the country, that such things uh, are happening. I mean, you cannot quickly explain the normal people in abroad, yeah, let's say in Great Britain, that it's not a political persecution. It's just the normal work of law enforcement organs in the in Slovak context, of course. Grigory Mesezhnikov believes that the very fact the accused officers are being defended by Robert Fico, who's morphed into the de facto leader of the country's COVID deniers and opponents of Slovak support for Ukraine, speaks volumes about the rights and wrongs of the case. It's a view held by many, but not all. And those divisions will certainly come to the fore when Slovaks go to the polls in six weeks' time. For DW, this is Rob Cameron in Prague. So much at stake in those elections. To make sure that you don't miss our ongoing coverage, make sure that you subscribe to our podcast. And speaking of the podcast... It's question of the week time. Last week, we asked you which European country shares its national anthem with the UK. And lots of you headed over to Spotify to take part in our poll. Liechtenstein and Monaco were head and head for a while. But being the discerning audience that we know that you are, you correctly decided that Liechtenstein was indeed the answer. So congratulations to everyone who got that right. This week, we've got something rather different for you. Instead of a poll, we're going to be inviting you to share your own thoughts and experiences on a topic which has gripped Spain this week. It is machismo in sport. The triumphant return of Spain's World Cup winning women's football team was marred this week after a row over machismo broke out after the president of the Spanish Football Federation, Luis Rubiales, kissed a player on the lips. What we want to know is, have you ever experienced machismo in a sporting context? And if so, how did you deal with it? To share your thoughts and experiences with the Inside Europe community, just head over to Spotify and click on this week's edition of the show.
Our inbox is, of course, also always open and we love receiving your comments and ideas for the show. The address is insideeurope at dw.com. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. In the next half hour, political earthquake, a new party enters the Dutch elections race. Omtzigt knows the political traps. He talked about the need for a more transparent political style, including establishing a constitutional court and a total new election system in the Netherlands, enabling voters to directly choose candidates. Home again, meet the Armenian repats sharing in their country's adversity. French produce a plenty, but who's going to bring in the harvest? And night under the stars, we take our seats in a historic Sicilian amphitheatre. That's all still to come. From Bonn, Germany, you're listening to Inside Europe. Peter Omtzigt is one of the most popular politicians in the Netherlands, having been instrumental in uncovering two of the largest scandals in the country's recent political history. This week, the former Christian Democrat announced that he is launching his own party called New Social Contract and promised a new way of governing should they come out top in national elections in November, a scenario that pollsters are currently betting on. Now, Political earthquake is not a phrase that correspondents tend to use lightly, but those were exactly the terms that our own correspondent, Stefan Boss, began speaking in when I called him up to find out more about the week's events in his native country. Was Omtsicht's announcement really that significant an event, I asked? I think it is. This is really uh, something that even... People could not expect, let's say, one and a half year ago, because at that time, Peter Omtzigt, uh, the 49-year-old politician, had even a burnout. But now he is really back in business. People know him already as the person who was uncovering years-long ethnic profiling by uh, tax authorities of thousands of parents uh, receiving child benefits. Now, uh, as a result, close to 1,700 children 
were forcefully removed from their parents, uh, with many parents divorcing or in some cases even committing suicide. That eventually led also to the uh, collapse of uh, Prime Minister uh, Mark Rutte's third government in December uh, 2020. And he also played a crucial role, I would say, in fighting for thousands of people in the northern province of Groningen. Uh, They are suffering from uh, earthquakes uh, due to persistent natural gas uh, exploration there. You know, these are just uh, two examples of uh, someone who fought for years for a different, more uh, transparent political culture, I would say, in the Netherlands. Uh, And um, that was only appreciated in some places, but the elections in 2021 has seen that really politicians... uh, tried even to get rid of Omtzigt. A press photographer noted position Omtzigt function elsewhere on one of the notes uh, from scouts at the time when they were trying to form a new government. And after first denying it, uh, the current Prime Minister Mark Rutte, uh, he denied it initially, but later he admitted that they had spoken about uh, Omtzigt. And that led really to one of the biggest political scandals, I would say, in Dutch post-war history so much to unpack there Stefan and you know I noticed that you've just listed two of the biggest stories that you have reported on for us from the Netherlands in in the past few years and he has been at the heart of uncovering both of them I mean that must make him very high profile and and, uh, controversial in the Netherlands. Yes, absolutely. And I would say even there is also some jealousy towards him, uh, even within his own Christian Democratic Appeal Party, uh, which he, by the way, has now left. Uh, He eventually became an independent legislature because even there he faced personal attacks from leaders. And uh, that was one of the reasons why he uh, resigned. and then also he had a burnout, uh, but uh, he now says he's fit enough to start his party called New Social Contract. New Social Contract. Okay. Um, what are the main objectives of this party? Is it? Is, I mean, is it just a protest party or is there really something solid behind it? And if so, what? Yes, well, indeed, of course, we have had uh, protest parties in the Netherlands in the past. But I think with uh, 20 years of experience uh, in the House of Representatives, Omtzigt knows the political traps. And he was uh, very concrete when speaking about what his party wants to tackle. He talked about the need for a more transparent political style, including establishing a constitutional court and a total new election system in the Netherlands, enabling voters to directly choose candidates from their provinces to parliament. That is not possible now. But he also addressed deep-rooted social problems in what was supposed to be one of the world's wealthiest nations. The tweede grote probleem is the bestaanszekerheid. Guaranteeing a minimum living standard is a constitutional task of the government. But now we have 400,000 people dependent on food aid from food banks, according to the Red Cross. We didn't have them 20 years ago. We also lack 390,000 homes, making it impossible for youngster starters to begin their independent lives. These basic rights, good affordable quality food, energy, health care and homes, we have to ensure in the Netherlands. And of course, uh, Katie adds that they can't do it alone. And with elections around the corner, some have expressed concern that he needs more time to set up uh, the party. So we have to see how he will manage uh, the coming weeks.
Well, indeed. But I mean, just in terms, Stefan, of the, the public reaction to the announcement of the founding of this new party, how, how have people responded? Well, you know, interestingly, he will take away votes from the other newcomer, the Farmer Citizen Movement, or in Dutch, Boer Burger Beweging, BBB, that's an uh, agrarian and right-wing populist political party. It is led by Caroline van der Plas, an outspoken woman who once arrived at Parliament on a tractor. I have more trust in him than in her. I have more trust in him than in her because of the things he did for the country. It's my impression that he's more dedicated to the weakest in society, while Carolina von der Plas is more concerned about the farmers. I am supporting the anti-Islam PVV party. I think many people will be disappointed in the newcomers. It is just the Christian Democrats 2.0. Two very different sentiments there, Stefan. Now, although polls show that Umtzicht's party may become the biggest, uh, he himself isn't exactly enthusiastic about becoming prime minister, is he? No, no, it sounds very strange. But indeed, he has said he didn't want his party to become the biggest even. So it's very strange. But Omtzigt realizes there is little time left to fill in the dozens of seats his party will likely receive. That's according to the polls. But he has always suggested he prefers to control the government rather than be part of it. However, prominent Dutch opinion researcher Maurice de Hond expressed concern about his attitude. For him personally, it may be a good choice, but not if one looks to the electorate. Voters want to know who will be their prime minister, and I think it should be made clear who will be that candidate. Now, the elections will be held on November 22nd, so many more things will happen before that time, but I think uh, Omtzigt is definitely a politician to watch in the coming months. And it's reassuring to know that you will be watching him and indeed other political developments in the Netherlands for us, Stefan. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome, Kate. To make sure that you don't miss any of Stefan Boss's coverage in the run-up to this year's elections in the Netherlands, then do subscribe to our podcast. I'm Andreas Becker. I'm Nicholas Martin. This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. I've lost 20k. I had 350,000 euros in the account. And the scam might just continue. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy, hence why they like cannabis and crypto. Money, money, green, you know, like, everybody likes money. In this investigative podcast series, we entered a world that we never expected to find. It bears all the trademarks, the Russian mafia. It's a fantasy. People want that the Russian is the very best. Stop fantasy. This is Cannabis Cowboys. A story about big dreams, juicy money, and never-ending hype. Find Cannabis Cowboys wherever you get your podcasts. Now, conflict, as we know, causes people to flee their homes. But our next story is about the exact opposite. A conflict which is inspiring, some people at least, to return home. 
For more than eight months, Azerbaijan has blocked the one road leading into the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is home to ethnic Armenians. The blockade has led to widespread shortages of food, fuel and vital medicine – And it is this hardship that has inspired some Armenian immigrants in the U.S. city of Los Angeles to move to Armenia to help out. Reporter Levi Bridges travelled to the Armenian capital Yerevan to meet the people that some are calling the Repats. In fall 2020... Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a brutal 44-day war over the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh. Entire towns fell to Azerbaijan and thousands of Armenians were displaced. Members of the Armenian diaspora living abroad were heartbroken as they watched the conflict play out from afar. Hovik Manacharyan, an Armenian immigrant who moved to Los Angeles decades ago when he was still a teenager, got on a plane during the war and flew to Armenia to help as a civilian. It just sort of feels less stressful being here than far away and hearing about your homeland and not being able to contribute. After the war ended, Manucharyan and his wife, Susanna, talked about moving to Armenia full-time with their three kids. We always wanted to move back, but the 2020 war was a critical point for us. The war inspired lots of Armenian Americans to move here. There was a sense that if you ever wanted to do it, you should do it now, because Armenia might not exist forever. We have any California ones, but see. Oh, no. I brought all the spices I could from Trader Joe's. How's that supply then, going? Yeah. <laughs> you stock up next time you go back? Yeah. Yes, yes. Today, the Manucharians live in an apartment overlooking Yerevan with their kids and a big, goofy poodle they brought from the States. <laughs> For the Manucharian's 17-year-old daughter, Vashtiner, moving nearly halfway around the world actually wasn't that hard of an adjustment. In America, if you move schools, they don't care. They're going to be like, oh, is that girl new? Okay, whatever. But here, like, I remember the first day, the whole entire class cried me. They're like, hi, what's your name? Hi, let's show you around the school. Schools are more like family. Her mom, Susanna, says even despite the ongoing conflict happening just a couple hundred kilometers away in Nagorno-Karabakh, raising kids in Armenia gives her peace of mind. Here, I, I feel very safe when they take taxi from one place to another place. We know that, hey, this is Armenia. Everyone is Armenian. Everyone cares about each other. <laughs> we don't think of, like, hey, what's going to happen? A lot of people moving to Yerevan were born outside Armenia and have never lived here long term. There are actually more Armenians living abroad than there are inside Armenia. Starting more than a century ago, many Armenians fled to faraway places like California when modern-day Turkey committed the Armenian genocide. Now, with Nagorno-Karabakh under blockade and people there facing food shortages, many Armenians feel like a painful chapter of history is repeating. 28-year-old Mikhail Matosian from California relocated to Yerevan last year. We met up in a cafe. I just felt like I wasn't doing enough by just being in L.A. and working there, knowing that people my age or younger were being displaced or killed or hurt by the war here. Matosian worked in renewable energy back in L.A. 
Now he's helping Armenia make their energy system less dependent on Russian gas. Other so-called repats are opening businesses and starting nonprofits. It's like the opposite of a brain drain. Inside an old factory building, I drop by a studio where an Armenian musician is recording her first music video. Actors are running around wearing hats with big feathers and fake diamonds. Spritzes of hairspray explode in the air. This is Mary. She's the makeup artist. And Arthur Agajanians, an Armenian immigrant from Los Angeles, launched a startup here called Carpet Jam that showcases Armenian musicians. He actually worked in construction back in L.A., but growing up right beside the film capital of the world, it rubbed off on him. Just being around a place like Hollywood and entertainment and music, you've seen how it's done right. And then you come here and you try to follow the same suit. Repats have an incredible impact on this country, but many of their parents don't support them moving here. My parents were concerned, like, are you sure that you don't have a clear job? You know, they didn't physically stop me from going, but they were not very happy. There's this idea that there's a lack of opportunity in Armenia, and I think families who are immigrants, it feels like a step back for their children rather than a step forward. That last voice is from Kyle Kandikin. He grew up in a close Armenian community in the U.S. His relationship with Armenia is complicated. He's gay, and he says growing up, LGBTQ issues weren't talked about very much among Armenians he knew. As a kid, I didn't feel like I could be out, and I wasn't out. But once he became an adult and came out, Kandikin felt like his different identities, Armenian, queer, could all coexist. And that made him want to wholeheartedly jump back into the Armenian community by moving to Yerevan. And I think maybe one of the reasons why I wanted to come here is to let go of some of the baggage that I was given just by way of being born into this place and this people. For the children of Armenian immigrants, moving here isn't just an opportunity to help their country. It's also a way to explore Armenian culture and figure out how they fit into it. Levi Bridges, DW, Yerevan, Armenia. They say that home is where the heart is, but where is that? To be honest, it's a question that I myself still struggle with. If you've got any thoughts or insights, though, that you'd like to share with us on that topic or indeed any other topic, then you can drop us a line via the Inside Europe at dw.com address. Now, it's harvest season in Europe, and last week we looked at the conditions faced by migrant workers in greenhouses in Spain. This week, a French perspective, which comes to us from John Lawrenson on a farm somewhere southeast of Paris. A woman armed with pruning shears in a jungle of tomato vines snips off bunches of ripe red fruit and tosses them into a sack as the radio plays in the background. We're in one of the greenhouses of Les Saveurs de Chailly, a large tomato, cucumber and strawberry farm near Fontainebleau, southeast of Paris. Farmer Benjamin Simonot de Vos says it has become more and more difficult to hire and retain workers over the past 20 years. Now each season begins with the fear they won't have enough hands to get the harvest in. 
des coins de, de culture parce qu'on était trop en retard par manque de personnel d'abandonner. Euh... We have had to abandon some of our production because we can't harvest quickly enough due to lack of workers. The worst is when there is a hot spell and big volumes of strawberries need to be harvested at the same time. Then it's a catastrophe. Fruit rotting the fields. We are thinking of planting less in the future because harvesting in all has become so uncertain. Par peur de ne pas trouver de personnel. Je m'appelle Lydia. Je suis portugaise. Ça fait. Seasonal worker Lydia Pereira has been coming from Portugal every year since 2015 to pick tomatoes at another farm called Tondaki near Bordeaux. She works long seasons, March to October. She likes his work, she says, but she only picks cherry tomatoes. She says she's too short to pick the big ones. Farmer Benjamin Simonot de Vos says this sort of work is much less gruelling than it used to be thanks to technical innovations. But still, few French people are willing to do it. People think it's too tough. They are just not as hardworking as they used to be. And there is not enough difference between what they earn when they work and the handouts they get when they don't. So people prefer to stay at home. Vous souhaitez travailler en agriculture pour la prochaine saison Contactez The seasonal worker recruitment film aimed at the French, posted by farmers on social media. À très bientôt. But farmers are also casting their net wider. Céline Comgrain-Villa is a vegetable grower in charge of employment issues at the Vegetables of France Growers Association. C'est de plus en plus compliqué. It's much more difficult to find workers from other EU countries as well. We used to have a lot of Romanians, a lot of Bulgarians, but not anymore. So we're looking further afield. For example, we're setting up a partnership with the French Immigration Office in Morocco in order to offer our members seasonal workers from rural parts of Morocco who will come and work in France for up to six months before returning home to their country. And there are others from even further away, but who are already here. Corinne Deluc is in charge of human resources at Tomdaki, the cooperative which employs Lydia Pereira. We work with an association that enables political refugees to integrate through seasonal jobs. We work with Afghans in particular. We have 12 Afghans working here at the moment, along with workers of other nationalities, Ukrainian from Latin America as well. Most of them are from rural areas and are used to hard work. Any problems with all those different nationalities working and living together? No, she says, they're on their fifth season with the Afghans. Back at his farm in the Marne Valley, I ask farmer Simonot de Vos what he thinks of migrant labour as a solution to France's seasonal worker shortage. After a while, they'll just turn into the French, he says, and prefer to do something easier or live off benefits in some the wrong sort of integration. In the meantime, though, the Afghans are helping get the harvest in. John Lawrence and DW, Chailly en Bière, France. A quick reminder of that feedback address again here, insideeurope at dw.com. A trip to the theatre is up next, so do stay tuned. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You are listening to Inside Europe. 
Built by the ancient Greeks in the 5th century BC, rebuilt in the 3rd century BC, and then renovated by the Romans, the ancient stone amphitheatre overlooking the Sicilian town of Syracuse is one of the most famous remnants of a metropolis that once rivaled Athens. At the time, Sicily was part of Greece, and the impressive stone amphitheatre held as many as 10,000 people who watched tragedies written by Sophocles and Euripides. That tradition continues to the present day, but this summer, for the first time, the repertoire opened up to include other works, such as Homer's Odyssey. Megan Williams attended the show this summer, which opens again in September, so you still have a chance to catch it. And I've got a bad, bad The sound of folk rock band Reuben in the Dark providing a foreboding refrain in Ulysses' The Last Odyssey. This modern take on the ancient Greek tale, set in an airport, is part of the Syracuse Festival held in this 2,500-year-old outdoor theatre. Through spoken word, dance, and music, this latest version of the Odyssey is a mashup of influences. Homer's epic poem, Steven Spielberg's The Terminal, Pina Bausch-like choreography, with Reuben in the Dark's music full of yearning underscoring it all. There's a certain sentiment that was across all of the songs that really suited the storylines in the Odyssey. And I kind of was surprised by myself as to how I like seemed to write from that character says lead singer Ruben Bullock of the hero Odysseus, or Ulysses. In the tale, the Greek hero sails away from Troy, triumphant, after a 10-year siege, and with a group of fellow warriors, makes his way through Greek islands back home, encountering one-eyed monsters and deadly sirens, a scene Bullock wrote original music for. You know, beauty and temptation and evil and all of that kind of combined into one dance. It was exactly what uh, we were expecting for this piece. Says Italian director and choreographer Giuliano Paparini of the music. Paparini says what drew him to directing Ulysses was that the protagonist wasn't a hero who consistently made good and brave decisions, but a complicated and at times selfish and flawed man whose desires put other people at risk. This is the complexity of that character, of that personality. Each man could find something in his personality, in his way to do. He, he wants to see things and lots of his companions die for just his uh, curiosity. Along with the folk rock soundtrack, setting the play in an airport helped it resonate for younger audiences. So we just changed the word palace with airport, and there we go. Greek scholar Francesco Morosi translated the poem for stage, stripping the text down to focus on the adventures Ulysses has after leaving Troy and before arriving home to his wife Penelope. Fellow travelers stranded in the airport with him helped bring the story alive through their listening. Yeah, the storytelling and Ulysses telling his own story and then uh, sharing this storytelling with 
uh, all the people in the airport who are a form of, an, of, of another audience. So they show us that they can you know, empathize with this man who is suffering, who has suffered a lot. The idea was that the, the real adventure is, uh, you know, living with the other people. Aedo, ti lodo soprattutto i mortali. Davvero ti hai scritto la musa figlia di Zeus? Ma tu canti come sei tu stesso? The courage of the old thing was very important says theatre critic Peppino Ortolano of the production, which he calls gutsy, presenting an ancient poem with crowd-pleasing Italian variety show panache at times, from a pole-dancing Odysseus as the sirens try to lure him to huge TV screen ads for ancient Greek islands. A little bit kitsch, which works because you have to think that every show of this as 40,000 spectators, which is amazing. This year was kind of an experiment to use classical text and to mix it up with dance, modern music, the folk rock band. Says the new young head of the Greek theatre, Valeria Told. Told, who arrived this spring in Syracuse, says her first goal has been achieved, broadening the style and repertoire beyond spoken word Greek tragedies and comedies to draw in the younger audiences. About a third of audience members for Ulysses were under 25, higher than for other shows. Her next goal, she says, is to find foreign partners to take the show on the road to the rest of Europe and across the Atlantic. Ulysses, The Last Odyssey, will play again in September in Sicily before touring throughout mainland Italy. Megan Williams, DW, Syracuse. A night out under the stars, watching the Odyssey performed in an ancient amphitheatre. Oh, yes, please. Watching two sweaty billionaires fight it out in a cage? Yeah, not so much. And I do hope that the Coliseum is taking notes. Anyway, that is it for today. This programme was produced by Helen Sini, with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineer Gerd Georgi, assisted by Gianluca Wald and Jana Stegermann. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. <laughs>